Sonic Statesman.com. Hello and welcome to Sonic Talk number 77. 77 sort of feels like it should have some kind of great significance being, you know, punky and um, the Jubilee and all of that, that stuff. But I'm afraid I couldn't, I couldn't really think of anything. So 77 and this week's topics have nothing to do with any anything. But uh, I'm pleased to welcome my guests. Um, we've got Mr. Dave Robinson, who's um, managed to jet in, squeeze us into his busy schedule from ProSound News Europe. Hi. I, was, I just wanted to say, I was listening to your, um, I was listening to last week's podcast, and you had a bit about vocoders. And the only time I've used a vocoder, my, my um, Midlands accent came out so pronounced. I was pretending to be a Dalek, and I played it back to, to one of my friends, and they said, uh, since when have the Daleks come from Birmingham? <laughs> <laughs> so, so because of that, uh, I, I haven't gone back. It scarred you, did it? It did, yeah. Well, I can understand it. Well, Dave, thanks for joining us anyway. Um, We'll move quickly on because I know your time is limited. Uh, Mr. Mark Tinley, how the devil are you? I'm not very well, actually. Oh, no. That's not the Um, answer I was hoping to hear. have to be sympathetic and stuff. Yeah, you do. I've got a horrible eye infection, so much so that I went to the doctor on Monday to get some of these uh, antibiotic eye drops, and the whole thing swelled up so much that I couldn't see. Oh, my Lord. Do you look like you've been in a fight? Uh, I do, yes. But in, in a very sort of horribly, you know, uh, infected fight, I suppose. Fight with a zombie. <laughs> Are you scaring the little old ladies in the post office in the local shop, then? Well, I've got an eye patch. I went to the gym today with the eye patch on, and when I was in there, uh, there was this piece of music playing which had a chorus which was saw high, but I kept hearing saw oh, wow. eye. And I was going, how does she know I've got a sore eye? That's a good question. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I hope, I hope you spent a lot of time on the rowing machine. That would have been just about right, wouldn't it? Hey! <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then I, I sort of uh, decided I'd go into PJ's world for a while, so I closed my eyes on the running machine. That was ah. the weirdest experience, because I'd got one eye closed, obviously, and if you've got one open and one closed, it's sort of disorientating. So I closed both of them and ran for 16 minutes on the running machine with both eyes closed. And when you opened them again, were you in the same place? I was in the same place. <laughs> have you still got your phone on? I, I, so I was still, I was, yeah. Fully clad. <laughs> But I just, I have a friend who's also, um, well, blind for want of a better word. I mean, he can barely see anything at all. And he goes running and he goes running with, uh, with a, a sighted person as a sort of a, a motorbike and sidecar combination. Oh, and interesting. he was saying to me, it's, it, you have to really put a lot of trust in the person you're Absolutely, running with. Absolutely, I would because, think so. You know, where the person goes, you kind of use them as a cross between your stick and, uh, and a guide. And he said, you know, if you ran full pelt into a, a lamppost, it would really hurt. You'd end up of in course, hospital. Yeah, it it, it, trust, me, it, it trust me, it does. <laughs> <laughs> was, that the, uh, was that the night when you were running home from your tequila bar experience, PJ? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm on this running machine. I can't conceive of it. I just can't conceive how anybody blind could go running because I would be so scared that I, was, that I didn't know what was in front of me. Well, you have my sympathies, Mark, and I hope it gets better soon. Um, PJ Tracy from Minneapolis, how are you? We missed you last week. I'm fantastic. Yeah, uh, technical difficulties last week, but uh, glad to be glad to be back for sure. Okay. He needs a wee. Mark, you better see to it because there could be a terrible accident. Be back in a minute. <laughs> 
Uh, and finally, Mr. Dave Spears uh, from G4 Software, g4software.com. Hello. Um, so you had a good week. I had, um, you weren't with us last week either, Dave, were you? No, I was, uh, funnily enough, in near Cambridge. Ah, were you sampling kind of synthesizers or anything? I was, yes. Woohoo! What kind of synth? <laughs> <laughs> okay, ten points for the person who guesses a synth from this piece of music. Uh, Polymoog. Yay! Oh, I thought it was a liberation. Damn. That sounds good. Is that some new instrument that's coming? Some new packs? Or we kind of... Uh, no, people have been begging for this Voxumana from uh, the Polymoog for the String Machine expansion pack. Uh, so we have... We had to go and get some more GX1 samples, which is brilliant because we mic'd it up this time. And uh, I think the sound is blooming awesome. So, yeah, it was a good day. Very good day. Great, great. Looking for when they're going to be coming out, do you think? Uh, I'd be lying if I said a uh, date. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I actually got an email um, alerting me to the um, the townhouse auction um, from, I forget where it came from. but it, MJQ, then, Malcolm Jackson. And then I saw um, that you were running a piece on it as well, which at the townhouse yeah. is, I mean, it's a legendary London, is it Goldhawk Road? Yeah, Goldhawk Road. Road. Sort of Shepherd's Bush area of London. I mean, I know um, when I um, did an album many years ago, we mastered it there. And they also had, um, so I went there, I think, there was a session I went to a golf rap where I delivered some stuff. They did a, some mixes for the, the last but one album. They haven't disclosed when the last artist will be in there, but it's, it's due to close at the end of March. The rumours were circulating a few weeks ago because um, mastering engineers from the studio were, were ringing other people they knew in the industry to say, hang on a minute, you know, we've, uh, we've heard that uh, it's closing. And then uh, it was officially... Um, officially released the news was officially released um last week and uh, it's a great shame yeah it was 25 years old uh, in 19 sorry in 2004 started in 1979 by richard branson and um all kinds of uh well in fact a kind of magic is one of the albums that is recorded there uh, along with um uh, famously, uh, Phil Collins is um, in the air tonight, recorded in the studio too. Blur's The Great Escape. You know, um, Elton John used to record there when he was in uh, when he was in London. He yeah. recorded um, um, Goodbye English Rose um, for uh, Princess Diana's funeral. Having been celebrated um, at, at some length, I just I, I dug out um, the, the Music Week magazine did a, a big sort of uh, 25 year congratulations. Um, supplements in, in their um, 2004 editions, an October edition, 20, um, 2004. And then here we are, you know, two and a half years later, and it's all over. You know, I mean, Sanctuary got into trouble, Sanctuary got bought out by Universal, um, and uh, obviously Universal didn't really see a long-term future for it. I can say that now because they're selling it. So um, uh, it's, uh, and as far as I know, it gets a bit hazy what's happened with the, uh, with the lease and who owns it and, and who owns what. But as far as I understand it, um, there was a break in the lease so that Universal could actually sell the, uh, the property. And, uh, it'll be, it'll probably go the way of, uh, Eden and, um, various other big studios, um, Lansdowne and be redeveloped into, uh, into flats. Luxury flats. I mean, you know, this is, this is prime real estate, um, with fantastic transport lo- links into, into London. And, uh, well, it's just one of those things. It's a shame. It's a great it is shame. A shame. 
I wonder what sort of ghosts you'd find in a studio building that uh, when they sort of put the flats in. I mean, could you imagine there'd be sort of like really like Mick Glossop or sort of, you know, people who are kind he's of... still alive. Well, I know, but I mean, in the future. <laughs> I'm just, I know he's still alive. Sorry, Mick. I, that's not what I meant. I meant, you know, characters of, of, of a sort of, uh, uh, perhaps a sort of feisty nature who might be kind of... Well, the Sweets did record there. For, they were the first band to record there. So you probably have quite a lot of sort of um, glam rock types. That'd Lots be. of the sound of big, big um, platform boots. Um, walking up and down stairs, glam rock ghosts, Se- yeah, sequins falling on uh, on tables and that kind of stuff. Ah, oh, lovely, Dave. Have you ever been there? You've been in most studios. Is that one that you've um, done any sessions in? Yep, I was in uh, Blimey in early eighties, sometime with John Martin. In fact, oh. funnily enough, with Phil Collins, and then years and years later, Underworld unmastered dub no bass in there. Do you think that some of these kind of the thing about some of these central London studios, the reason that they they were so successful and probably could, you know, surprising they're not still, is that you know the fact that you've got access to London, so that you're you're actually in the thick of it. So if you're doing promo and other stuff at the same time, it's not like a massive slog and drive to get back to the studio to get on with the work. I mean, it seems, or if all of these places go, people are going to be sort of locked up in more remote areas for longer. Kind of, do you know what I mean? It's going to be much more demar. Dem- demarcation between you know the recording process and, and and the rest of life i think it's so people can go and buy chocolate at three o'clock in the morning <laughs> from the garage yeah exactly <laughs> all night garage absolutely essential to any recording process well, stick it out in the country you won't have one of those will you no i suppose not well they probably open they could open a tuck shop couldn't they <laughs> the uh <laughs> Mark, can Mark, I, 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 they'd have to have someone to run it wouldn't oh, they that, yeah that's that <laughs> can i ask dave when you were in the studio with phil collins Mm-hmm. You weren't. That wasn't a drumming capacity, was it? I mean, did you keep looking at his kit and he kept looking at you and saying, "No, hands off." <laughs> Probably. Uh, actually, it was completely bizarre because he's right-handed but plays drums left-handed, and I'm left-handed but play drums right-handed, so it wouldn't have worked. So the dream that you know Phil was going to fall ill and go, "Dave, I need you to step into the breach here," was never going to happen. Oh, not without, oh, not without a lot of chaos, anyway. PJ, I'm, I'm sorry that um, this is a very sort of UK-centric and London-centric kind of uh, discussion, but, I mean, you must be finding the same thing in, um, it, you know, in, in Minneapolis. There must be kind of big studios closing down also, or is it a oh, different... Oh, no, most sort- definitely. Yeah, turn of, turn of the century, right after, almost immediately after 9-11, there were three major studio closings <laughs> wow. in uh, Minneapolis. And then, and there weren't, two, you know, we, we have quite a few, but they um, most of them all went down. And then... We had a few smaller professional facilities open uh, that never made it, and now we have uh, a couple of private concerns and uh, a school that has a, a pretty full-fledged commercial facility um, that's uh, extre- you know, extremely expensive because they're one of the only of their kind. And a phenomenon that I like to call the professional, professional space project studio. And that's where you'll get somebody that's probably paying close to $10,000 a month on the commercial space they're renting, and all they've got in there are a couple of laptops and uh, an HD system. It always strikes me as really sad, because I remember when Crescent Studios closed down in Bath, and you know that's a yet another one of those studios that claims to have invented the Phil Collins drum sound. Um, but it's a little studio with a big reputation. But all, when these buildings get repurposed, that sort of... All the kind of creative energy and the kind of legendary things that happen there, just it just seems like such a sort of sad way for it to end. You know, it sort of feels like some of these places should be sort of kept open as museums or something. It is that. You look at CTS, you know, which is um, which was bulldozed because um, 
bulldozed to make way for sort of car parking and uh, uh, sort of a redeveloped uh, concrete space outside um, Wembley. Oh, and man. that's where countless albums and orchestral um, soundtracks and uh, James Bond soundtracks and big big movie soundtracks were recorded. And uh, there's just not there's not a trace there to remind you that that this legendary legendary building was there. It's a it's a great shame. I mean, at least I would imagine Townhouse as a building will remain and will be gutted and uh, and reshaped as apartments. I I don't think. It would be um, it would be knocked down and rebuilt. I mean, that would be a shame. You won't read this in print, but uh, I'm I'm reliably informed that uh, a leading band, which I won't name, but uh, you know, an A-list band, um, were would not pay any more than four hundred pounds a day in Studio One in the townhouse. And I was talking to somebody about this, and they were saying they can remember a time when when people were complaining when it was a thousand pounds a day. And this is ten years ago. The, the rates, the record company. Uh, rates have been pushed down so much that uh, that people can charge that little and get away with it. But how is a professional studio um, with with the amount of the overheads it must have had um, supposed to survive when when people want those kind of rates? It's ridiculous. No, in the early eighties, I know that uh, that was Studio Two, and that was fifteen hundred a day. Mm. I mean, that's the early 80s. But, I mean, that yeah. was the going rate, wasn't it, then? Well, it sort of goes back to... I mean, we could sort of take it back to one of the topics we talked about last week, which is the SPX90. It all started there. The SPX90, it was that... That's that's whose fault it was. That was the beginning <laughs> of the end for all of these studios. <laughs> I mean, and in it, to a degree, it's... You know, it's, there is an element of truth in that. I mean, how flippant. Yeah. No, I miss- ADAT, the ADAT machine. I remember when... The- yeah. ADAT hit and, and all of these project studios cropped up all over Minneapolis. Yeah, was- yeah. Almost like an overnight affair. Yeah. Well, uh, commiserations to all those people who have affiliations and sort of emotional ties to the townhouse. Um, See you later, I suppose. I wonder who's getting the last session. I wonder if there's actually a kind of booking frenzy to get the last session. Sure there will be. Well, sad. I hope it's a good record. I think they know who it is, but they're not not releasing the name. Well, maybe it's Elton. He's going to do some sort of... uh, He'll rework Candle in the Wind to... um, to work you know to work for townhouse townhouse <laughs> townhouse studio <laughs> uh, this is the topic it was sent by a guy called bartle hoygaard i hope i pronounced that right and it was an item on the bbc and it's ray kurzweil who is a, apparently a leading u.s inventor i mean i thought maybe it's a coincidence he says humanity is on the brink of advances that will see tiny robots implanted in people's brains to make them more intelligent he said he believes that um, machines and humans will eventually merge through devices implanted in the body to boost intelligence and health. And health, uh, it's really part of our civilization. He explained. Um, this was basically announced at um, at the Association American Association for the Advancements of Science in Boston, and they they got a load of boffins together, and there are fourteen challenges which they announced. And I was looking, I was thinking that can't be the same Ray uh, Kurzweil, but in fact. I, I had a look at it on Wikipedia, and he started out as a uh, an optical. As a, well, he's a scientist, and his first project was a big project was an optical re- recognition system, which is where he first associated himself with Stevie Wonder, because Stevie Wonder was interested in that, presumably for you know, kind of text to voice. From then, uh, he went on to develop the Kurzweil computer music instruments, and they did the Kurzweil K two fifty in conjunction with um, with Mister Stevie Wonder. So, yes, it is the same guy. Wow. It's interesting when you keep track of these dates. You think twenty twenty nine. Now they're, they're giving they're saying you know twenty one years. Have they pitched it far enough ahead so that when we get to twenty twenty nine, 
and uh, all we've got is our mobile phones that are just a little bit better than the ones we've got now. Yeah. We don't go, well, he was wrong, wasn't he? Well, he's, what he's actually saying is he thinks that they will have, we will have the, both the hardware and the software to achieve a human level of artificial intelligence with the broad suppleness of human intelligence, including emotional intelligence, by 2029. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's quite a claim. I mean, and it sort of sounds like one of those kind of one of those kind of mad scientists. Well, it's in a fact, bit Skynet, isn't it? It is a little bit kind of bonkers, isn't it? I mean, but I, I suppose it might be right. I mean, after all, he did invent the Kurzweil. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, what can you say? Yeah, but a, a keyboard that makes nice sounds is a bit different to a, to a robot that can uh, make emotional decisions. Well, yeah, true, but the Kurzweil K2000 or K2500, they, they garner an awful lot of emotional responses from their users. <laughs> so, you you know, say that. <laughs> did you? <laughs> Well, am I that I'm predictable? Gonna, I love would, the idea of it. I just love yeah. the idea that you can put different... It's very Matrix, isn't it? Where you yeah. can put, like, maybe I can put salsa dancing in or something, or I can put <laughs> picking what, up and, hot and actually enjoy it in a mean? bar or whatever. Yeah, all, all of that stuff. I just love the idea that you could probably just, you know, prop something in. It would change a few electrical connections, and you could completely change personality at the flick of a switch. I mean, how cool would that be? Mm, but then you get into all sorts of terrible trouble when, you know, the per- the personality that you had bought or had downloaded committed some terrible crime or did some misdemeanour that you could say, it wasn't my fault, it was, you know, it was my Kurzweil implant. It was Ray Kurzweil that did it, not me. It should, it should be mentioned that I, I've read several of Ray Kurzweil's books, actually. He's, oh, he's a writer yeah. as well. Yep, he is. He wrote um, initially a book called The Age of Spiritual Machines in 1998, and most recently he released a book called The Singularity is Near, which espouses his entire philosophy that technology is on a, on a fundamental curve and that soon we're going to hit an almost vertical spike in this curve where technology is just going to take off and drag human evolution into the stratosphere. Okay. I mean, if, if you really get into Kurzweil's theories, he believes that by the year 2050 or so, that we're going to be exploring the other side of the galaxy. Okay. He's, and, he sounds like he's quite in tune with the sort of Ian M. Banks um, science fiction of the kind of the, the emotional robots and the, the, you know, the, that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, he's espousing that nanotechnology is going to transform every single aspect of human reality, including the ability for us to break ourselves down into uh, nanoparts and rebuild ourselves into intelligent fog machines. And, and it's, it's uh, rubbish. Kind of, yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah. And if you, if, you read his first, if you read his first book, he lays out a timeline for all of his, you know, what he sees as technological hallmarks, but he's already well well behind the curve. I was going to say, that's fundamental, you know, physics says that you can't predict the, uh, you can't predict where, where a, uh, an electron is going to be. That's Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. That's, and that's, that's the whole kind of, uh, that hinges any idea of, of teleporting or, or, you know, over long distances. So um, Possibly, yeah. I, but here, you, a great book, actually, on this subject is by a guy named Joel Garrow. That's G-A-R-R-A-U-E, I believe. That's how that's spelled. And it's called Radical Evolution. And he he interviews Kurzweil in that book, as well as three others that are sort of at the forefront of um, technology in in all stripes. He interviews Bill Joy, who was the head of Sun Microsystems, who has a very gloomy view of the future. Uh, Darren Lanier, who is uh, uh, sort of a proponent of virtual reality and had um, several things to several dealings in Silicon Valley. And he talks to them all about what they think 
you know, the future of human evolution is based on where we're going technologically, um, you know, nanotechnology, uh, radical DNA shifting, all of that, gene splicing, that kind of thing. And it's a it's a really well written treatise on the subject because uh, Giro worked for the Washington Post, and so he just goes in with a very journalistic eye and says, "This is, you know, this is the take by some of our leading futurists." But Kurzweil has hundreds and hundreds of detractors. And if you want to see uh, Kurzweil <clears throat> speak on the subject himself, you can go to uh, www.tedtalks.com, oh, yeah. and there's a, a 30-minute video of Kurzweil basically talking about his singularity theory. Oh, we should check well, that out. Would anyone like to know what the other 14 challenges that were announced at the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? Go on. Go on yeah, okay. sure. The other, the other 14 of them were make solar energy affordable, provide energy from fusion, Develop carbon sequestration. Not sure what that is. Uh, manage the nitrogen cycle. Provide access to clean water. Reverse engineer the brain. I detect that's probably one of Ray's, isn't it? Um, prevent nuclear terror. Secure cyberspace. Enhance virtual reality. Improve urban infrastructure. Advance health informatics. Engineer better medicines. Advance personalised learning. And explore natural frontiers. Where uh, is make big killer robots? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> They're working on that. There was one other missing there as well, which was... Um, finally released the Kurzweil virtual analog but uh, <laughs> i didn't see that in there perhaps it didn't make it to the final list the thing the thing about all of this stuff though is they seem that scientists you know they can say what is possible and they can sort of predict that way but they don't they can't possibly predict social trends and you know things uh, like uh, you know like virtual reality definitely. headsets we did a topic yeah. about this some time back and the one the one sort of resigning feature of all of them is they make you feel nauseous and give you a headache so i mean that right. makes them totally worthless you know you could well use another them. thing is if, if if you if you read you know what neuroscientists have to say about the brain they we don't have an all encompassing theory of what intelligence is it's not even well defined nor nor is the brain even nearly fully understood in in the way that it works and so kurzweil is being optimistic by he he's equating the brain to processing power simply and saying that yeah. by 2029 we're going to have you know 1 billion times the processing power of the human brain and that alone is going to signify the fact that we're going to be able to create something that's going to pass the turing test and be signified as emotionally intelligent but i think that that's that's I think definitely he, yeah he's pretty he's he sounds like he's kind of quite a controversial figure and uh, but there is one thing that is true that mr kurzweil made exceedingly good synthesizers this yeah. is fun. This is all funding related, though, isn't it? You think so? I'm putting on my, <laughs> I'm putting on my cynical hat here, but I mean, I've got a neighbour who's a lecturer at the local university in uh, 17th century Italian Renaissance architecture, and he's always decrying the fact that you know his budget gets smaller and smaller. Whereas there's a guy, Kevin Warwick, who's who's another kind of advocate of um, implants, just gets more and more and more publicity and more and more money. And actually, one of the programmers that we used was. Um, under Kevin Warwick's wing and he said he sat through a four-hour lecture where he was you know going on about these implants in his arm and his wife had one and you know they could sense each other's moods and feelings and stuff like that and this guy knew you know knows a lot about this kind of stuff and he said at the end of it you know the BBC are filming it and at the end of it he said uh, so Warwick says any questions and our lad said uh, yeah with the greatest respect everything you've talked about over the last four hours is bollocks isn't it to which the guy kind of went well yes it is but please don't say that in front of the camera crew because this is all funding related if you come up (laughs) with these kind of wild claims yes i think there is an element of that isn't there oh yeah kurtzweil kurtzweil i think his principal business these days you know he he calls himself a consultant but it is as a futurist 
and that is seems to be i mean i hear that word bandied about a lot uh you know in talk radio and public radio and that type of thing and, it, and that seems to be a viable career path these days is a future well uh, yeah i'm just thinking here i mean the two one of the most viable career paths particularly in the u.s is religion so all you need to do is form a religion based around futurism <laughs> And you've absolutely cracked it, haven't you? Because I thought L. Ron Hubbard did that, didn't he? Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I've got to go, guys. Oh, Dave, well, thank you very much for your um, input on that last... Uh, that's a rather esoteric subject, but... Um, yeah. But, you know, we, we like to keep the, keep the tone up when we can. Um, we will be moving on to something much more lowbrow shortly. Cheers, bye. Cheers, bye. There we are. It was a lovely uh, homage to Visage. Oh, I'm glad I, I'm glad I got that out. Um, that was three versions. Obviously, the first one was the original. The second one was by a chap called Sharf 900, 9000 even. And the third one was um, by a chap called Push Pull. It was just kind of interesting that what they were using this for is a sort of a way to sort of flex their electro muscles, I suppose. And um, the, the last one that you heard there was done almost entirely on a Korg MS-10, where even the chords um, were, were played individually and recorded, you know, so he played the chords one at a time, the notes one at a time. I just thought that was quite good. I like the last one. Visage were quite an interesting band. Um, a chap called Steve Strange, who was a big sort of club aficionado in the late 70s and early 80s, um, he, he was an influential, influential nightclub host, and he had a p- club called Blitz in London. I just wonder if anyone, anyone ever go to that one? Mark, um, Dave, Mark, you ever go to Blitz, or was it no. a bit before your time? Um, I don't know if I did or not. Actually, <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a blur that part of your, that part of your life. I mean, the one thing I remember about Steve Strange is that I actually shaved my eyebrows off in 1982, and everybody accused me of looking like him, which I didn't like really. Because ah. I think he's a lot shorter than me, isn't he? I left them shaved off for quite a long time, actually. It was part of my whole goth look. It's on my website, in fact. If you go and look at the... Uh, okay, we'll check it out. ...funnymachine.com, and on the sound engineering page, there's a whole load about a band called Dormanu, which I used to be in, and there's a picture of me there looking slightly eyebrowless. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know that I look like Steve Strange. I don't think I do, but other people do. So. He struck me as being, I mean, you know, apart from kind of an amazing fashion icon at the time, being sort of fairly talentless when it came to singing. That was Midge Yore and Billy Curry were the guys who actually put the rest of the, put the music together. Is that right, Dave? You know a bit about this, don't you? Yeah, yeah, it's sad, actually. I, I emailed um, Billy asking if he had any good anecdotes, um, but he's either away or bored of talking about the past, so uh, I didn't get a response. But, yeah, it's funny how history sort of reviews these things, isn't it? Because Steve Strange was just... I always thought he was just a kind of face to sort of hang this, hang this stuff on. And as we know, the kind of real driving force was Billy and Midge. And there was another guy. Was it Chris Payne? I, I don't know, he- actually, but I had a very weird experience yesterday. Um, I got in last night and uh, Jane, my partner, said, 
Oh, I heard your name on the radio today. It was um, on. Um, it was Stuart McConey talking on BBC Radio Two, and they were talking about Visage and Fade to Grey. And this was really just total coincidence because I said, "Oh, well, after that, we're talking about." Um, they were talking about name band members, and he said there was a there was a Nick Bat in Visage. And really? I, yeah, no. Well, this is absolute rubbish because I I thought no, that can't be right. That can't be right. So I went and looked, and I did a search for Nick Bat Visage. And it came up because on Matrix Synth, there was a post some time ago of the video of Visage, and I must have posted on the site as well. So it says Visage, dot, 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 band members, dot, 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 Nick Bat, Sonic State. So it's just, I wonder if there's just some lazy Google work on the part of that research. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> so so I somehow become a member. I wonder if we can all get some credits that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, it would be a really interesting way of doing it and just get totally misrepresented, <laughs> yeah. wouldn't it? Dave, do you know anything about the the instrumentation of that? I mean, it's... It must have been some ARP stuff in there. Wasn't Billy Curry a big uh, ARPist? Yeah, he was a complete Odyssey ha- head. But he also had, in fact, it's weird listening to those renditions. I didn't get the third one at all, but the second one, the chords are like a Selena. And the first one is, I think it's Billy's, he had this Yamaha SS30 um, string machine, but yeah. they also kind of doubled it up with an Elka Rhapsody. But there's, it's very... Um, Again, this polymode Vox Humana thing keeps... In fact, as you were mucking about with it, I'm thinking, well, it's got to be... If it's a guitarist, it's got to be an A. Hang on. There you go. There you go. So there's the chords from the Vox Humana. Um, But no, it was weird, because I looked this up on Wikipedia, and I can't believe that it was... Well, I can, I have to believe, but it it says it was recorded at Genetic Sound Studios in 1980, which was Martin Russian's place. Right. That was my old horn for many years, but after, but you know, after this, but yeah, fascinating, fascinating. In fact, I don't remember genetic actually being where it was in 1980. I thought it didn't kind of happen until 82 or something like that. So this could have been in Martin's garage, which was in Henley, um, in a kind of sort of townhouse place. And it was weird. I used to sneak out the back of my parents' house for a cigarette, walk up the hill and Martin Russian had his place there, and I remember seeing the Stranglers walking in there one day, lugging all their gear into a garage and then telling my mates, and they were all going, no, nah, no, bullshit, bullshit. But it wasn't. That's where they did, like, five minutes and all of those tracks. Oh, oh wow. wow. That's great, isn't it? And there's cool. some brilliant videos. I mean, he must have been the the kind of the the, the fashion part of the Visage thing, because there's just tons and tons of really pretentious 80s imagery in there. Um, but the beginning of the... Um, fade to grey he's walking into a nightclub wearing a kind of shine he looks absolutely amazing i have to say until he smiles a bit and then it sort of breaks the breaks the image um but there was some i, I didn't realize but i was looking and there are some other videos um which don't match unfortunately up to the standard of fade to grey they they, they are a bit bit weird and there's one on youtube of um, him doing a performance it looks like on some german tv and it's really painfully painfully painful it's and you just think oh my goodness how could you how could you do that is that the chitty chitty bang bang one oh is the good one with all the sort of bolero dancers mind of a toy yes i thought that i just reminded me of that doll on a music box scene in chitty chitty bang bang yes i remember that one imagine dick van dyke to jump out of the uh you know the backdrop. Some you know what I think if they if, if they got Dick Van Dyke in for that video, I reckon it would have made it. It probably would have been better. Yeah, I think it would. 
He could have I done like a cockney like voiceover. The first video, though, in Fade to Grey, where he's got that hat over his eye, it kind of looks a bit like mine does at the moment. It's, it's all like closed <laughs> Maybe up. That was I'm it. sure he's got an eye infection. <laughs> Didn't Billy Curry also use one of those um, Korg piano strings things? I think so, probably at some point. But I know that um, when we were doing the string machine, I was asking him about various myths and stuff like that. And it was brilliant because. Uh, he basically said the only reason he used the Yamaha is that people, the Yamaha gave it to him. I mean, the thing with Billy is he's immensely musical. He's got a class, he's got formal training. And in fact, uh, you know, John Fox is, not, is another friend. And John said, you know, the one thing about Billy is that he was, he really was the kind of musical driving force behind Ultravox and um, early Gary Newman stuff. And obviously the bizarre stuff. I oh, really he did the Gary Newman stuff as well. What? Like um, our friends electric, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, in fact, here's his, he said the cello line, uh, so I'm talking to him about Vienna, and he said the cello line under the violin solo was done by a Yamaha um, synth. I think it might have been called the SS30. I can't remember now because it wasn't a synth of mine. <laughs> Yamaha basically gave us stuff, and I didn't say no. He must have been the kind of the early version of Vince Clark, I suppose, in a lot of ways, you know, or a similar of a similar kind of um, importance at the time. I mean, yeah, he, played no, violin, he played violin as well, didn't he? Electric violin. Yeah, and I mean, his Odyssey use is um, pretty much second to none. I know that him and John were kind of real Odyssey stalwarts. And I mean, the sounds... In fact, Billy always looked at it as the kind of... It was the punk synth. It was the synth that had the balls to cut through the guitars, you know, when they were kind of doing the punk rounds. Right. Which was that the Odyssey? Yeah. Ah. Which you can, of course, buy in virtual form from g4software.com. Of course. I mean, he says he used the Elka for the high note of Vienna uh, and the verse and the pad in the instrumental section with the violin solo. The rest was a chorus with the Yamaha string machine. That's the SS30. The one with the dodgy wood finish. It had a chorus switch that, if set slow, sounded more like an organ. I hung on to my Elka Rhapsody and used it for the for parts of Rage in Eden. Um, most of it was the first three Ultravox album. Artificial Life is my favourite. Anyway, there you go. Well, actually, I mean, because if he was very musical, I mean, Vienna is like a a, a, an exercise in minimalism isn't it? i mean there's just nothing there's nothing in it basically apart from a drum and a and a line one high sustained note from for a lot of it isn't there i have to say that's what i like about those i wasn't particularly neuromantic contrary to what the photograph reveals um but i i really like that kind of stark that's what i loved about craft work and all those guys you know that kind of starkness and that was very 80s wasn't it yeah 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 i've kind of recognized that in the drums as well because i tried using simmons drums recently and sort of doing stuff with them and if you try and make a drum track with simmons drums like those big ones uh it just doesn't work and what i noticed about that visage watching the original one the video they used that simmons drum sound in there which is kind of iconic well of the, the fade 80s. to grade it goes yeah brilliant but they only hit it twice in the whole song or two or three times towards the end and they just make this huge kind of sweeping across a bar kind of single drum hit and that sounds really good rather than trying to use that sound and and you know make it really obvious that it's that simmons sound and trying to make yeah, a drum yeah. track out and but fiena just has that kind of as a rhythm doesn't it it doesn't really have yeah a lot of those things are, are, are synthesized aren't they they're rather than um, simmons i mean they're actually just kind yeah. of drums made on synthesizers yeah oh we could go and we could have a whole program about vienna I think it was all, I was going to say as well that if punk was working class, then the 80s seemed very middle class in comparison. Yes. Everyone was trying to be cultured with all that French talking and stuff. 
Yeah. <laughs> I vaguely remember going on about Chianti and Cristal and then going out to nightclubs and drinking lager in black. <laughs> <laughs> PJ, this is yet another rather UK-centric and probably, I suspect, a little bit before your time kind of conversation, but uh, do, uh, do any of that kind of old um, electro-pop have a place in your heart or your collection? Uh, definitely in my collection. I have um, many, many samples of old drum machines, and uh, I own... Um, I own, of course, Dave's lovely synthesizers, as well as the, the VSM, and they are finding their way in, uh, in fairly representative form into some recent work that I've been doing. Oh, so cool. Hey. Yeah. Hey. You know, it, uh, definitely before my time. All right, so that was uh, Visage and a little bit of uh, a trip down memory lane there. Sonic Talk, sponsored by Yamaha Music Production. Producers of the world's most popular digital mixing consoles. Accurate professional studio monitoring systems. Incredibly realistic and portable digital stage pianos. The versatile motif range of music production synthesizers. And the latest N-series digital mixing studios. Featuring the cleanest signal pump and full Cubase AI4 integration. www.yamahasynth.com Sonic Tour. Happy birthday, Midi. It should be yeah, a public holiday. Should be a public holiday, yes. We're, yeah. we're going to lobby. If, if, if Martin Luther King can get one, we think that Midi should have a public holiday because this year, um, I think at NAM, uh, Midi just turned 25. And this was uh, something that uh, Peter Kern over at Create Digital Music just kind of asked the question. Because uh, 1983 was the, was the first year. Should we celebrate it? It's amazing that such a kind of simple computer-based sort of serial technology is still essentially driving a lot of the stuff that we do. I suspect now that uh, we're, we're in, in the, you know, in the form of USB and, and stuff going on in the box, it's not quite so important, but it's still got a fairly major place to part to play in music, hasn't it? It's quite astonishing, really. Oh, most definitely. I um, couldn't get along without it. Who, who could, right? In, in modern music production, but uh, I, I kind of, I wish we would move on. But what could it, you know, what to what? I don't know. I mean, is, isn't it adequate? Isn't that the whole point? It's kind of adequate and you just kind of... No, don't. it's horribly inadequate. Yeah, I think so too. I no, mean, I, I... You can't. You need to have a, a a MIDI interface with lots of MIDI in and out on it to sort of get it to work and be even vaguely as close in resolution as the sequences are these days. It's not a bad achievement, is it? It's bloody brilliant. Definitely. Stevie Wonder, write a song and let's get a, a MIDI birthday celebration and a public holiday. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, what makes me laugh, you know, we've been working on the Tron Pro and we want to keep the simplicity, obviously, of the original because so many people like that. But, you know, again, like with the VSM, people's knowledge has grown exponentially over the last, you know, sort of 10, 15 years. And I do remember, in fact... I've got a feeling it might have been Nick Rhodes. I seem to remember being in genetic. At, this must have been 83, 84, when somebody, a keyboard player, and I'm, I'm fairly sure it was him, was asking, well, yeah, but what does it do? <laughs> and the only thing people could think of at the time was the ability to layer up synths to get an even bigger synth sound, which <laughs> kind of makes me laugh. And, I mean, Chris tells a fantastic story about um, Keith Emerson asking him, you know, what's this M1D one? What, my die, what's that then? <laughs> <laughs> MIDI was so beautifully simple. I mean, we've had, what, what did they try and come up with? Maddie, Zippy, there was all sorts of things, wasn't they? I mean, everything's the Yamaha kind of... one? Music LAN or something? MLAN. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's still, MLAN still That's essentially it. had a bus for MIDI. It was just, had other stuff in it as well. Oh, MLAN, I yeah. mean, I wish somebody would just make a, 
and not 8-bit, but well, let's have a 64-bit MIDI, shall we? Since everything else is 64-bit now, isn't it? But, I mean, to still be using an 8-bit serial interface is kind of a bit nuts. Why can't yeah. we... Can you, can, imagine, can you imagine the amount of data speed? that you get from a, from sort of 48 tracks of 64-bit MIDI? I mean, that Oh, just, my God. You'd you'd have have I mean, we don't even record audio at 64-bit at the moment, yeah. or at least I don't, so... <laughs> you know, Jesus. you know, d- detractions aside, I I can't imagine having grown up without it. Uh, it. It allowed me, you know, when I was first getting into synthesizers, to to fully realize complex arrangements. Whereas just you know, just a couple of years before that, it wasn't even possible to do that in 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 a home studio, especially at that price point. Yeah. And, oh, and, I totally and, agree. Totally. Yeah, agree. and just everything that you're you know you're able to do with MIDI is, is yeah, I agree. It's 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 brilliant. It's I mean, before before I had MIDI, I was drawing things out on graph paper and step programming a DR55 yeah. drum machine, which was just like really Mickey Mouse, really. I mean, I love the sound of it now, but if that was, you know, not as my main and only source of being able to write drums. And when MIDI came along, of course, it gave me access to being able to play synthesizer sounds on the guitar, which I couldn't do before. And as I'm a guitarist and not a keyboard player, and there's something... I mean, although I can play the keyboards a bit, there's definitely something about trying to be an expert at one and then, yeah, at the, you know, do that. Well, I, I, I mean, I think, you know, where it really can, I mean, because you remember, you remember having all those kind of, you'd have those cables sort of going around your room when, in, back in the day when you had those keyboard stands that held more than one keyboard and they'd be in the corner yep. of the room and you'd sort of daisy chain them all together before we got multi-in-app devices because they were still very expensive multi-port MIDI devices. And I think where it really came into um, into to the fore was obviously with sequencing and multi-timbral units. I mean, that was kind of really mind-blowing. Hooking up stuff remember- pre-MIDI. Horrible. I mean, CV gate, you had everybody with their own proprietary formats, oh, yeah. different, different voltage triggers. I mean, it was just horrible. If something didn't go pop, the keys played the thing the wrong way around, right? Horrible memories. And then, of course, Mark's sentiment cuts both ways. I, I love the fact that these days you're able to realize very realistic orchestral emulations, you know, via MIDI, and and all of the expression that you're able to impart to to instruments as a keyboard player that you, you know, you obviously are not going to be able to to record an orchestra if you're the average musician or project studio owner, and and you have access to just these wonderful sounds and uh, and a deep level of expression via MIDI. So thank you, MIDI. Yeah. I emailed John Bowen last night, who I know was working with Dave Smith around the time of MIDI, just to ask him whether he had anything to add, because I was, wasn't sure whether it was all down to, to Dave Smith or whether, you know, there were others involved. And he said, uh, he said, bits I remember, um, Dave developed the idea out of the older serial interface that we had on the sequential gear um, for the polysequencer remote keyboard. He proposed some simple universal interface to the American and Japanese synth companies. And because of the competitive nature of the business at the time, None of the other American companies were interested in cooperating, but the Japanese were, which is where, you know, Roland and Yamaha. And what he said, what I recall is that Roland and Yamaha, but mostly Roland, sent back a response to Dave's proposal, adding things and making it a bit more sophisticated rather than the simpler data definitions Dave had suggested. Uh, I think he, he goes on to say, I think I heard Dave say once, note on, note off, and a few other basic things, things was all we really needed. Um, so it was obviously a, a, a kind of cross-party collaboration. I mean, can you imagine that happening again now? I mean, I can't. It just, you know, how quickly would that ever likely to come? Because people would want to license it and what have you. 
But what about something like uh, like Steinberg's VST, which happened, you know, not not even ten years ago or about ten years ago, where, where That's one very good point. Comes, mm. Yeah, so one company comes up with a standard and then it's adopted industry wide. Apart from Amagic. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Apple, little- who refused to put VST in their sequences, which is just <laughs> bloody-minded and stupid, if you ask me. Well, it's the fact that they did it and then changed their mind. Which they is- did yeah. and then changed yeah. their yes, mind. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so. I remember seeing um, Manfred going into the meeting with the Logic guys, and it was just like, yep, yep, you know, it looks like it's going to happen. And we were, like, jumping for joy. But, I mean, you're always going to get... I mean, it was even the same with... Do you remember the, when General MIDI was ratified? I think at the moment it was ratified, Roland came out with GS, which was an enhanced General MIDI. And it was like, you're always going to get somebody who's going to go, ah, but actually we're doing it this way. And that's why I think it's, it will be hugely problematical now. So what you're saying is we should just be thankful for what we've got. Well, I yes. suppose so, yes. I, th- I suppose in a way I am. And maybe, you know, the way to do it is actually to just, you know, like you say, maybe just go 16-bit, but keep it exactly the same. And then so you just end up with more controllers and more this, that, and the other, and more resolution, and then and just find a wire. You know, it could go down. I mean, it, okay. surely USB or Firewire would, or Ethernet would be perfectly capable of dealing with that sort of amount of data. No, but how, how do you do that with a serial language? I mean, how do you increase the bit depth? You know, of, of something that's that's serial. I suppose you don't, do you? Mm. Well, you'd have to speed it up from thirty-one point two five kiloboard. I'm sure it is. It's because I vaguely remember when fifty-six point whatever fifty-six uh, k modems came out. I was really excited because I thought, brilliant! I'll be able to like send MIDI over a telephone line to somewhere else because the modem's actually faster than the MIDI interface. And how wrong was I? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the the inherent problem these days with MIDI is the is the fact that you have technology out there that allows you, and and there are people that are short circuiting even even MIDI's capabilities, but technology out there that's capable of unprecedented resolution, all on the backbone of a technology that has 128 steps to its resolution, and that that mm-hmm. and then inherent timing issues, and that's problematic. You know, as as yeah. cool and as wonderful and as and as uh, integral to what we do as MIDI is. I mean, today we could have something that's, you know, umpteen times better than MIDI. But, yeah, like I said, it's very difficult. But I think it's have to happen at some point. It's going to have to come from the open source community because it's can't, it can't be motivated by business. Because can you imagine the amount of resources you'd have to put into the development of something like this? And, you know, where, what you'd ultimately get back, which was kind of... Uh, who sets the standards for, like, Firewire and SCSI and SCSI 1 and SCSI 2 and Ultra and USB and USB 2? And they have committees, don't those. they? Well, we need yeah. a MIDI committee then. Well, and the thing about that, Mark, is, I mean, that, that, that's, another, that's an interesting thing. I mean, I think Yamaha is the most re- one of the most recent um, proponents of, of trying to launch a new standard in the, in the MLAN standard, where, whereas Apple is pretty much responsible for launching Firewire as a standard. As a, as yeah. uh, but the, I mean, the thing is, though, they are related. So, you know, if you put MLAN or Firewire on one of your board, uh, on a board, you pay for the chip, which uh, has the license kind of built into it, the cost of it. So it's, it is related to a hardware license fee. Sure, sure. MIDI was So I think it would have to be open source, wouldn't it? So, But 25 years, that's not – I mean, in, in the age of technology, it's pretty amazing that it's still – Kind of so, it's uh, still being manufactured into items today. Just amazing. What a legacy. It is, you're right. Definitely. 
So well done. Uh, guys, thank you very much for your um, joining us this week. Obviously, Dave Robinson's already left the building. Uh, thank you very much to Mr. PJ Tracy from Minneapolis. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, Nick. It's been a pleasure as always. Uh, Mr. Mark Tinley, um, near the epicentre of the UK's largest earthquake for 25 years. Indeed. Thank you for joining us too. I'm still here. Yeah. <laughs> Just stay <laughs> on the ground floor. I can't see anything, but I'm still here. <laughs> And uh, Mr. Dave Spears from G4 Software, g4software.com. Thank you for joining us also. Thank you. And remember, folks, comments are always welcome. We'll be happy to read them out or play them or however they arrive. Uh, you can email them at, to sonictalk at sonicstate.com. We can just take words or MP3s. Or if you've got Skype, uh, you can call us on Sonic Talk, the handle Sonic Talk. Oh, we've got an answer phone there. Just leave us a message. Uh, we've got Skype in numbers in the US for that. Uh, so dial 312-376-8089 if you're inside the US. Or if the UK is closer or you're in the UK, 0207-870-8616. Remember to dial your country code for those if you're outside either of those countries. That's US telephone number 312-376-8089, UK 0207-870-8616. Thanks for listening. Sonic. State. Watch call.